Hello, and welcome to Rounds with Reliat, the podcast for healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Jesse Saffron. Today's topic is stroke, which is the fifth leading cause of death in America. According to some estimates, there are almost one million stroke-related hospitalizations each year, and direct and indirect costs are roughly $35 billion. On top of all this, there are malpractice issues that can arise from failures to properly treat and diagnose. To help us unpack some of these issues, we are joined today by Dr. Matthew Fink, a Lewis and Gertrude Feil Professor of Clinical Neurology and Chairman of the Department of Neurology at Weill Cornell Medical College. Dr. Fink, thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jesse. I'm delighted to be here, and I hope I can provide uh, the listeners with some useful information. Dr. Fink, can you talk first about what stroke is, the different types of stroke, and the types of patients most at risk? Certainly. Stroke is a condition that causes sudden damage to the brain due to occlusion of an artery that goes to the brain that supplies blood to the brain or rupture of a blood vessel in the brain, which causes bleeding. And the hallmark is the sudden and abrupt loss of function. The signs and symptoms of a stroke, and we try to teach the general public this because it's important that friends and relatives of a stroke victim can recognize these things and therefore call 911. The commonest symptoms are the sudden onset of loss of movements, weakness in an arm, leg, and face, usually on the same side of the body, sudden loss of feeling on one side of the body, the sudden loss of ability to speak normally or to understand when someone else is speaking to you, loss of comprehension, the abrupt onset of dizziness or vertigo and loss of balance, inability to walk, and then the abrupt onset of severe headache, something which is much worse than the usual headaches people get. It's often described as the worst headache of, the li- of my life uh, when they occur. And when any of those symptoms occur, we tell the patients, we tell friends and family, anyone who is a bystander, to call 911. This is a life-threatening medical emergency get to a hospital as quickly as possible and do it by ambulance. Don't try to get yourself to the hospital. Now, there are some estimates that uh, many of these strokes can be prevented. Can you talk about the prevention side of the equation and maybe discuss some of the different approaches to treatment? There's the polypill approach and the personalized risk factor modification approach. I think that prevention is the most important thing we should be doing here. Uh, because it is true that 80% of all strokes can be prevented. And the reason they can be prevented is that the cause of strokes are related to what we refer to as risk factors that over time cause damage to the blood vessels in the brain or that lead up to the brain. And it takes years for these risk factors to cause damage and result in a stroke. And and the, the most important ones, and I'll start with the most common and the most important, uh, is high blood pressure, hypertension. In the United States, 70% of people who reach the age of 65 will have high blood pressure. But only half of those know they have high blood pressure. And of those, 
only 60% are being properly treated. So we have millions of people in this country who have high blood pressure that is not being adequately treated, and that is the single most important risk factor for stroke. Having high blood pressure increases your risk of having a stroke by eightfold, 800% increased risk of having a stroke. And if you treat high blood pressure properly, you can bring that back down uh, to zero risk of uh, compared to another person who has normal blood pressure. So this is the single most important thing. We talk about this a great deal. Uh, so that's what I refer to as a risk factor. Other very, very important risk factors are cardiac disorders, specifically abnormalities of heart rhythm, cardiac rhythm. About one-third of strokes are caused by a blood clot from the heart that goes to the brain in patients who have what's referred to as atrial fibrillation. That's an irregular heartbeat. Blood clots form in the heart and travel to the brain. These blood clots can be completely prevented by the use of blood thinning medications, antithrombotics or anticoagulants, things that go by the name of warfarin, Apixaban, rivaroxaban, these are medications that prevent the blood from clotting, they prevent strokes from occurring, and they will be very, very effective. Yet, there are millions of people, again, walking around with this condition, not being adequately treated. Other risk factors include elevated cholesterol, which again can be treated, the presence of atherosclerosis in the arteries that lead up to the brain, and that can be treated, poor diet, obesity, physical inactivity. The worst thing you can do is become a couch potato, and as we all get older, the single most important thing you can do for yourself is to increase your level of exercise. Uh, hormonal therapies, hormone replacement therapy seems to increase the risk of stroke in women, and birth control pills in younger women increases risk of stroke in younger women. So these are all problems and risk factors that can either be eliminated or reduced. And that's how we can reduce the risk of stroke. Good health habits and attention to the risk factors. Now, you mentioned what is referred to as a polypill, which has been suggested as a combination of an antiplatelet medication like aspirin combined with a cholesterol-lowering medication such as atorvastatin and combining that with a third medication which lowers blood pressure. That would be an interesting approach uh, to treat a large population that does not have ad adequate access to health care. I do not favor that approach. I really favor a more individualized approach to these risk factors because every person is really different. There are no two people that are truly alike, and using a, a standard combination of medications across a population, I believe, will not be terribly effective in a country like the United States. It might be more effective uh, in a country where people simply don't have access to health care, um, and then distributing a pill like this might benefit that population. But in the U.S., I, I don't think that's a good approach. To find out more about topics like this one, 
please go to reliasmedia.com slash podcast where you can listen to other episodes. There, you also can subscribe to our informative publications such as Neurology Alert and obtain CME credit. Dr. Fink, what are some of the malpractice risks that can arise for providers in these cases? It seems like much of the litigation we've seen in this area has to do either with delays in diagnosis or failure to treat stroke with tissue plasminogen activator, TPA, in a timely manner. Can you expand on that? Also, are there problems that can arise from some of the drugs that are prescribed, both for prevention and post-stroke treatment? What have you seen in that area? Yes, these are all very important points. Uh, My first advice to providers is that uh, they focus on providing the best possible medical care based on what we refer to as evidence-based medicine, the information that we know based on clinical trials, and not practice medicine thinking about uh, litigation. Um, I just think that is a, a problem, creates unnecessary anxieties, Um, I'll use myself as an example. I've been a neurologist now for 40 years, and I've dealt with all sorts of the most critically ill patients. Uh, I have never been sued, ever, Um, not once. Uh, Yet I've been in very difficult situations, but I've always focused on providing the best possible care, and I think that's what doctors should do. However, having said that, there are definitely hazards out there that everyone wants to pay attention to. The first is either delay in diagnosis or failure to treat a stroke. And unfortunately, there are still many situations where there is a failure to diagnose a stroke, even when a patient comes to an emergency department, that the doctors involved are not thinking about it, they're not doing the appropriate tests, so they fail to diagnose it. And they're by lose the opportunity to potentially treat it. So right now, the standard of care is that if a patient arrives at an emergency room and has had an ischemic stroke, ischemic stroke is the type where the blood vessel is occluded, has had that stroke based on symptoms within four and a half hours, then that person is eligible to be treated with intravenous thrombolytics specifically tissue plasminogen activator. And it's important that we don't miss patients like that. We want to make sure they're treated, not because we want to avoid litigation, because, but because it's the right thing to do for the patient. We want to make sure they get treated. But there are many lawsuits out there due to failure to treat with those drugs. Now, there is uh, the flip side of this, which is, if you give a patient who has contraindications a drug like TPA, they could have serious bleeding complications, and that can certainly be grounds for a lawsuit. So, for example, if you give a patient TPA who's had a previous history of severe GI bleeding and they have a severe bleeding episode after given TPA, that's a serious issue that can result in a lawsuit. Or if you haven't taken an adequate history and the patient is already taking a blood thinner, such as warfarin, and many are, and you give that person TPA 
along with the warfarin, there's a high risk that that person will have an intracerebral hemorrhage, and, and that most certainly will result in a lawsuit. So it's very important that neurologists and, and emergency medicine physicians who are taking care of patients like this get adequate histories, are careful in what they do. They should understand the indications and contraindications of these medications in order to provide the patients with the best possible treatment. Now, it's become even more complicated because in the last three years, there have been seven large randomized clinical trials that have demonstrated the benefit of mechanical thrombectomy in patients who have large vessel occlusions to the brain, and that causes a major stroke. Uh, so those issues need to be rapidly evaluated as well. And the difficulty is that some small community hospitals don't have the expertise to do this evaluation or interventions, and patients may have to be transferred from one hospital to another. That causes sometimes unnecessary delays, and sometimes it will deprive the patient of proper treatment. Uh, that also is a risk factor for doctors in terms of uh, risk of litigation if there are unnecessary delays uh, because of uh, problems with transfer from one hospital to another. In your view, what are the biggest issues in stroke today? And also, are there treatments or medications on the horizon that seem to you to be especially promising? Yes. Um, right now, one of the biggest problems is the organization of emergency medicine care in the community. And this relates to what I spoke about earlier is getting the right patient to the right hospital that has the appropriate facilities uh, to be able to treat that person correctly. Right now, the standard approach is to go to the nearest hospital when there are stroke symptoms. And the problem with that is that uh, that nearest hospital may not have the expertise or facilities to treat that stroke. So that is a problem which is being worked out throughout the United States to identify hospitals that are fully equipped and can take care of a stroke patient in a comprehensive fashion. And that, that is a, a major problem right now. There's a lot of controversy about where patients should go. And as you can imagine, the hospitals don't want to lose patients. They don't want to give them up to other hospitals. But at the same time, we want patients to get the best care. As far as medications on the horizon, there are some new thrombolytic drugs uh, which have been developed, which I feel are going to be more effective in the field and during emergency treatments. Uh, the one that's been developed is called Tenecteplase. Uh, it has not been approved in this country by the FDA yet, although it has been approved in some European countries and is being used in Europe, and I think this will be a more effective uh, thrombolytic medication. And then the largest area of exploratory research going on right now is what can we do with a patient who has had a stroke, has been 
treated with everything available to us, but unfortunately is left with serious brain damage and has severe disability, paralysis, and problems like that. Is there anything we can do to help those people recover? And I think one of the most exciting areas that's in investigation right now is to use and develop stem cell therapies to try to help those patients recover beyond where they would be if uh, left naturally to recover. Now, this therapy is being studied. It's in clinical trials right now. I can't predict what's going to happen, but I'm an optimist by nature, and I'm hoping that these stem cell trials will eventually show some real benefit for patients who have sustained brain damage from their strokes. And potentially, stem cell therapies could be applied to other things as well, for example, traumatic brain injury. So I'm a very optimistic person in terms of the future benefits of stem cell therapies. Dr. Fink, what else would you like to see going forward, whether in terms of new research or just greater awareness on the part of providers and the public in general? I ask that because you discussed the importance of prevention earlier, and it seems like a lot of work remains to be done in that area. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right, and a huge education effort should be undertaken first to educate the general public because most of the things that we're recommending that can prevent a stroke, reduction of risk factors, are lifestyle modifications. And those are things that doctors can't do for the patient. People have to do those things for themselves. So an educational program for the general public, I think, is critically important. Uh, I and my colleagues, we spend much of our time giving talks to the general population in and around New York City, because I think it's very important for them to improve the, their health as well as recognize the symptoms of stroke. The next group that needs education are primary care physicians and general internists, who are the ones that really provide most of the basic care that relates to these risk factors, and unfortunately, Primary care physicians and internists in their training nowadays get very little neurological training, and they just don't know very much about this topic. So the, the people that need the education are, are not the neurologists so much because neurologists spend a lot of their time learning about causes and treatments of stroke. That's a core part of our training. But it's the non-neurologists who need more education and the general public. Today we've been joined by Dr. Matthew Fink, an expert in stroke and a Lewis and Gertrude File Professor of Clinical Neurology and Chairman of the Department of Neurology at Weill Cornell Medical College. Dr. Fink, thank you for being on the show and I hope to talk with you again soon. Thank you very much for the invitation. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Relias Media, where we empower healthcare providers to improve patient care and outcomes. To find out more about topics like this one, please go to reliasmedia.com slash podcast, where you can listen to other episodes. There, you also can download our books and study guides, such as Stroke 2018, The Cutting Edge, and obtain CME or CE credits.